0: Turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to begin reading with verse 1. Read down through verse 3. Genesis 12, verse 1, down through verse 3. Title of the sermon is The Good News of God. Let's read together God's word, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the joy and privilege we have of being able to lift our hearts and our voices to you in praise, to worship you, to bless you, to honor you with our lips, with our time. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news, the gospel, the story that unfolds before us in your word and that continues to be lived out through Christ in your church. And we pray that as we think for a few minutes this morning about this good news, that you would convict our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would transform us, that we would leave here different, that we would testify that your word has challenged us and is shaping us into the people that you've called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Few of you perhaps have heard the story of the father who was watching his young daughter intently drawing one day and out of curiosity asked her, what are you drawing? And she replies, I'm drawing God. And of course he says, well, You don't know what God looks like. Not even the most accomplished and astute theologian knows what God looks like. How could you possibly be drawing God? And she replies, well, they will when I'm finished. (laughs) And I think sometimes whenever we think of the gospel, we think of the good news that is proclaimed each Sunday, uh, that we bring our own preconceived ideas, our own assumptions that were shaped by both our upbringing as well as by the culture around us and what I would hope in in these few minutes is that we would instead be shaped by God's word, the good news of scripture. What is after all the gospel? Now I know there's some debate uh, even within our reformed circles there are some people who uh, when they talk about the gospel uh, really include almost the whole story of scripture Uh, Everything is included in the gospel, every good counsel of God. And then there are others who say, no, the gospel is only the truth that I am a sinner and that Jesus died for me. A very narrow, perhaps, perspective of the gospel. But essentially, the word gospel, which we talk about so often, comes from the Greek word that simply means good news. And if it's good news, and we see this in the New Testament, then why is it good news? Well, I would suggest that in order for us to understand this good news, we have to look at the gospel in the context of all of the Bible, all of scripture. And so we go back here even to the beginning of the Bible to Genesis chapter 12 and we see the good news that is understood here in the context of God calling Abraham. And so there are four different characteristics of the good news of God that I want us to look at this morning. Uh, The first is, God is a God who calls. In order for us to understand what's happening in Genesis chapter 12, really we have to go back and understand what took place in Genesis 11. And some of you who are Bible scholars, you already know what happened in Genesis 11. You you remember there's a tower that God's God's people, that the people that were uh, living on the earth after the flood tried to build. It was called the Tower of Babel. And what they tried to accomplish in the Tower of Babel was three different things. One, they wanted to reach God. Now, this was after the flood, after everything had been destroyed, after man began to repopulate, and uh, after mankind was given the same commission that God gave Adam and Eve in the very beginning, which was to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and fill it. And so they were given this, what we call in 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 our circles, our reform circles, the creation mandate that they were to fill the earth and replenish the earth and subdue it. But in Genesis chapter 11, we see them doing the exact opposite. Instead, they're building this tower that they hope reaches heaven. And the reason, the justification for building the tower, is that they don't want to be dispersed throughout the entire world, but rather they want to stick together. And also, they want to make a great name for themselves. And so it is against the backdrop of Genesis 11 where God comes down and He disperses mankind throughout the earth. He changes their language, which is why it's called Babel. He changes their language so that they can't understand each other. And basically, He draws the line of ethnicities, of people groups, of tribes, nations, and tongues, and He disperses them throughout every corner of the earth. And then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and we hear God doing something very interesting. He calls to Abraham... And that's the first point that we see here. The first characteristic of the good news of God is that God is the one who calls. Genesis chapter 11 is man trying to find God and doing it in all the wrong ways. But ultimately, Genesis chapter 12 is God seeking for man and doing it in the way that is ultimately good news. And so we come to Genesis chapter 12, these first three verses, and we see that Abraham, before his father died was in Ur of the Chaldeans and the voice of God comes to him and we don't know a lot about how this happened. Uh, we, We wish often that the Bible would tell us more details but it only discloses what God wants us to know. But God calls to him and says go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house. Now really there's no indication that Abraham was even looking for God. Up to this point, we know very little about him. There's speculation, there's ideas. Jewish culture has its own theories about who he was and what he was doing. But when we look at scripture, which is what we hope shapes our thinking and informs us about the good news of God, we really don't know a lot about Abraham. There's no clue, no indication that he was looking for God, but rather, that God was looking for him. And so God tells him to leave the land of his nativity, the land of his kindred, the land of his tribe, his people, and to go to an undisclosed location. Now later, that location will be disclosed. It will become what we call the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But at this point in time, God simply says, go out and follow me by faith, that I'll lead you to the place where you should go. And so it's this solitary act of obedience, which is inseparable from his faith, that is the means of his salvation. We see this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Again, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says the same thing. So in order for us to understand the good news of God, we first must consider the one who called Abraham and the nature of this calling. Hebrews chapter 11, which is a fairly well-known chapter uh, in the New Testament. It's what we call the Hall of Faith. All the people that uh, were Old Testament saints that manifested faith in God, their names are listed in this chapter. Some people that we would expect are there, people perhaps that we wouldn't expect are there as well. But Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So we ask the question, well, where did Abraham receive this faith? How did he have faith to trust God, to obey so that he would leave the land of his nativity, the land of his kindred, his father's house, everything that was familiar, and go to an unknown region. Ultimately, Abraham had faith because God had chosen him. Abraham believed God because before the foundation of the world, God chose Abraham to be the recipient of his grace and to be the means through which his grace would be shared to all mankind. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, where Paul is telling the church of Ephesus, he's making this declaration of praise to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so it's the fact that Abraham was chosen by God. And we know this and we talk about this a lot. We, we even have a theological term for it. But it's the fact that God chose Abraham not only to be the recipient of his grace, but also to be the vehicle of his grace before the foundation of the world. And so the New Testament continues to talk about Abraham's faith in 1 Thessalonians where Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica that he who calls you is faithful. In other words, the one who calls us will bring about that which he calls us to do. God was telling Abraham, leave the land of your, from, of your kindred, of your people, and go to a place that I will reveal to you, and I will do something for you. And we'll look at what that is here in just a minute. But first, we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, and, and Paul says that God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is the one who calls. Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham would not have known where to begin, but rather it was God looking for Abraham. God enabling Abraham with the grace that he was shown to have faith in him and to trust in him and to leave the land of his nativity. Now. We know in the Gospel, John chapter 6, verse 44, that Jesus told the Jews and he told his disciples that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. So we see that part of the good news is that God is the one who calls, that God is the one who initiates a relationship, that the creator of heaven and earth, who flung the stars into the furthest reaches of space, who is intimately uh, familiar with the most mundane molecular object that modern man perhaps is not even aware of. The same creator, the sustainer of life is the one who calls you and me. He's the one who invites us to join him in this great work that he is doing. Now, many of us we think of the call of God as being something that happens initially when we come to faith in Christ, and it is. But God's call also continues throughout our Christian life. The gospel, the good news of God, is not simply something that we hear once and then no longer need, but rather it is, some, it is the message of God that continues to shape us throughout our entire Christian lives. I heard a story one time about... Of course, it's a, I guess it's not a true story, makes a point, but it's a story about a man who happened to be walking along the side of the road and um, he reaches a certain point and he sees someone in the distance kneeling down on all fours and he's curious what this person's doing. So he walks over to him and looks at him and on closer examination, he realizes this guy is kneeling down to the ground with his ear to the ground. And so he's curious. He stands there for a minute, and he says, what are you doing? And the guy says, shh. And he points to the ground, and he leans back down and puts his ear to the ground. So out of curiosity, the man who was walking on the road, he stops, and he does the same thing. And he, he, he kneels down, and he listens to the ground for a long period of time. And finally, he's frustrated, and he stands up, and he says, I don't get it. I don't hear anything. And the guy who had been kneeling down, he looks at him and says, I know. That's the way it's been all morning. For some of us, the call of God falls on deaf ears, because ultimately, according to the New Testament, it is only when our heart has been tuned, when our hearts are, 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 are softened by the grace of God, and we are we have a term called regeneration. It's a fancy way of saying born again or new birth. When our hearts are softened by the Holy Spirit, then we are able to hear the call of God and only then can we respond in faith. And so the good news is, the good news is that God who calls is also the same God who enables us to respond to his call. And so we look at Abraham and we say, well, what was the means of his salvation? It was his obedience, but his obedience was a reflection of the fact that he believed God and he followed God where God led him. All right, this brings us to the second point, which is that God is redeeming the land. So we know that God is the one who calls, but now let's look at what God promises to do for Abraham. In other words, here's another way of asking the question. What did salvation look like for Abraham? Well, when God calls Abraham and he establishes what we have termed the Abrahamic covenant, he makes a covenant with Abraham, which we'll see in Genesis chapter 15 and again in Genesis 17 and 18. But here, when God calls Abraham, he already says three things. First, he tells him to go from your country because I'm giving you land. In other words... We have to consider what Abraham gave up in order to see what God is promising. Abraham gave up land, the land of his nativity. He gave up community that comes with that land, Ur of the Chaldeans. He gave up everything. He gave up uh, his household. His father, of course, died, but uh, we see in Genesis 15 that Abraham and his father left Ur of the Chalde- or, or sorry Genesis uh, 11 the Abraham and his father left Ur of the Chaldeans prior to his father's death. So even though he took his father with him, it was just a short distance in the journey that his father died. So you might say Abraham gave up family. But everything that Abraham gave up, God promised. He promised him land and he promised him a blessing. He said, "In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And then the third thing he promised is seed or descendants. I think most of the time, whenever we look at the Abrahamic covenant, we study Genesis chapter 12, we preach on it, we see the land of promise as a means to an end, right? We see it as the incubator, the place where God's people will go and where they will live and hopefully demonstrate what it looks like to be... uh, uh, subjects of God, the the great high king, until he sends the Messiah, the promised one. But think about what Abraham is promised. He's promised land. In fact, that makes up a large part of his journey. He journeys looking for the land of promise as if he is a stranger in it, longing for a city that is made without hands, a city whose builder and maker is God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11 as well. But it is the fact that God promises Abraham land that gives us some indication into the extent of the good news or the gospel, the work of God redeeming all things. Ultimately, that land, at least in the Abrahamic covenant, was not a means to an end, but was an end in itself that God was saying that every good part of his creation he would redeem. And so land becomes a central part of this Abrahamic covenant or this Abrahamic promise, what salvation looks like for Abraham. It becomes a central part of the Mosaic covenant as well, what salvation looks like for ancient Israel. God promises them that he will redeem them from Egypt and take them to a land of promise. And so ultimately, it is land that is part of the redemptive plan of God. Now, some people say, well, land here has an esoteric nature, which means that it's figurative. It's referring to something spiritual. After all, Hebrews 11.10 says he was looking for a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So it has to be somewhere out there. He has to be talking about heaven, the place of the departed dead, right? Well, ultimately, if we see the redemptive plan of God throughout the Bible, not only here in his promise to Abraham, but also throughout the prophets and throughout the New Testament, we see that God's purpose is to redeem all things, including this physical universe that we live in. It's not referring to this esoteric city, Abraham. Their every indication here in Genesis 12 as well as throughout the rest of the book is that Abraham was looking, yes, for a city that God would build, but his expectation was that God would build it in the land of promise and that from there that God would redeem all things, every square inch of this universe. And so part of the good news of God is that God is redeeming the land. So what does this mean? Or in other words, so what? What is the significance of this feature of land being part of the promise of salvation that God makes to Abraham? Well, if the physical land is part of the good news, how should we define this good news and the relevance of this good news in our everyday lives? how should we see this physical world? If this physical world is not simply the context of God's redeeming work, but the content of his redeeming work, then what does it mean for how you and I should see the world that we live in? Well, I think two things. I think it's important for two reasons. One. Because if we see this world as simply being something that is disposable, number one, if we see see the world as belonging to man, then we will see it here for our purpose and our sake to be used, exhausted, and exploited for our own means. But if we see the world as belonging to God, then we understand that we are caretakers of it and that he is the owner of it. If we objectify the world to the point that it has no creator, no owner, or if we think we are the owner, then we will use it in a way that is dishonoring to God. And this, by the way, is the case with everything in our lives. the, The definition of idolatry is taking the good gifts of God and usurping God's sovereign rule or his authority in our lives with those good gifts. And then secondly, the flip side of this, is that if God is redeeming all things through Christ, and if that includes the physical universe that we live in, then Christians, and I'll I'll just say this once and you can think about it and pray about it and then I'll move on, then Christians should be the strongest environmentalist in the room. I'm glad I got some amens. All right, let's go to point three. So God is the one who calls. God is redeeming the land. And God is building a kingdom. So let's go back to Genesis 11 for a minute and say, well, what was it that people were trying to accomplish at the Tower of Babel? Which, by the way, what they wanted to do at Babel was the exact opposite of what God wants to do in redemption. They didn't want to fill the earth and subdue it. They didn't want to fill the earth and replenish it They didn't want to fill the earth and become vehicles through which God can accomplish his redemptive purposes throughout the world. Instead, they wanted to stay in one place and build this tower that would reach to God. They wanted to build their kingdom, if you will. And so what we see in the Abrahamic promise is that God tells Abraham he's going to build a kingdom. Not Abraham, but God. He tells him to leave the land of his nativity And he says in verse 2, in verse 3, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Again, contrast that with what mankind wanted to do at the Tower of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Here, God is making a name for Abraham. So he says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Abraham was asked to give up the kingdom of his nativity, which symbolized the kingdom dominated by fallen man. The kingdom dominated by man who sees this earth and everything in it as here for our own exploitation and our own purposes. God promises to make Abraham a great nation. What makes a nation great? Well, he actually tells Abraham what makes a nation great. He says, "In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's not that this nation will be wealthy or strong in in its military prowess, but rather he says, in you, in this work that I'm doing, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what makes a nation great according to scripture. Greatness is defined as the extent to which we make other people's lives flourish. Now again, we're talking about the good news of God. We're talking about the gospel. And it's interesting to me because in our evangelical culture, we hear the gospel and we automatically say, well, the gospel is about Jesus saving me from my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. And that's part of it. Yes, that's a very important part of it. But notice that when God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he doesn't even mention sin. Why? Was it because sin didn't exist? No, sin existed ever since Genesis 3. He doesn't mention sin because ultimately, salvation, going back to Romans and Genesis 15, is found not in Abraham's perfect life or in his moral superiority, but rather in the fact that he put faith in God. And that faith was the means of his salvation. Salvation, or the word that we often use is justification. Big theological word that basically means that we stand justified in the sight of God. So, the great nation that God promises to build through Abraham is a nation that will be a blessing to all people. It's a nation that will be a blessing in all the earth. In other words, what God will do with this new kingdom that he is building will be the fountainhead through which will spring his redemptive purposes, and through which flows into every community on earth, gospel-centered flourishing. That's God's purpose for this kingdom that he's building. Now ask yourself the question, is that how you and I see our job, see our role, see our mission? in our everyday life? Do we approach our family? Do we approach our jobs? Do we approach our community and ask the question, how can I make the lives of people around me a blessing? Now, obviously, the Bible defines what it means to be blessed. The Bible defines what it looks like to flourish. And we know that people can only truly flourish when they find a purpose and meaning in in God. But we also know from looking at the descendants of Abraham, the Old Testament community, which was Israel, we know that their very presence was a blessing in the earth. And so what God is doing is accomplishing in and through his kingdom, or in and through his people, the means through which he can bless not only his covenant people, you and I, those who put their faith in Christ, but also ultimately the entire world. Now, what's another way of asking this or stating this? Another way of putting it is, as Christians... Hickson Presbyterian Church should be such a blessing to the surrounding communities that people would feel our loss if we weren't here. That you individually should be such a blessing to the people that you know and work with and live with and rub shoulders with on a daily basis that if you were not here, it would be a loss to our community. Now, I don't want to overlook the fact that this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And we talk often about the sanctity of human life. And we have this tendency within our culture to compartmentalize it. I'm probably going to get in trouble for what I'm about to say, but um, we have a tendency within our culture to compartmentalize life. Because you see, when you objectify the world that you live in, when you separate the Creator from creation, then ultimately what becomes indispensable or what becomes dispensable are the marginalized among us. And so the unborn or the aged become dispensable, which is one thing, unfortunately, that we see within our society. But it's equally a gospel mandate to care for the fatherless, the poor, the widow, and the stranger in our midst. Look at Israel when they received the law of God from Mount Sinai. They are given this command to treat others in a way that God treated them and he reminds them you're strangers in Egypt you were strangers there and I redeemed you and I brought you to this land that I ultimately promised to Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 and I expect you to treat everyone especially the marginalized in a way that provides for them cares for them and loves them so yes the unborn, those who are born without parents to care for them, the elderly, the widow, and the stranger. And even though we don't like to talk about it, the stranger is that person who is here, but not a citizen. So the sanctity of human life goes much further in God's economy than simply caring for the unborn. Now, again, we go back to point three and we see that God is building a kingdom, and that through this kingdom the purposes of God will be accomplished. Cannot be denied that the part of the good news that God is revealing to Abraham is that He is reestablishing a community for him that will not simply be a community like the one that he came out of, it will be a better community. It will be a community of redemption. And of course, in the Old Testament, that redemptive community was called Israel. In the New Testament, it's the same community, but it's called the church, the Ecclesia, those whom God has called from every walk of life, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And the purpose of the redemptive community has not changed. We see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that the purpose of the redemptive community was to be a blessing in all the earth. And that is fundamentally our mission, our purpose as well, to create an environment of blessing throughout the entire world. Jesus said this in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So if part of the good news of God is that we, as followers of Christ, are a community of blessing, what does this mean for how we live out our faith in everyday life? Well, first, It means primarily two things, I think, and perhaps more, but only two that we have time to discuss this morning. First, it means that we put more confidence, and I'm going to say this not to negate the fact that what you believe is important. What you believe is vitally important. We talk a lot in our circles about getting your thinking straight, letting our faith, our thinking, our worldview be shaped by Scripture. What you believe is very important. However, if we are to become a community of blessing, we must put more confidence in how we treat other people than in affirming creeds. Because at the end of the day, faith is not revealed in what you say you believe. Faith is revealed in how you live your life. That's why the Bible says that faith without works is dead, according to James. Far from being a formula of blessing, where the people of God become the means through which people are blessed because they bless them or cursed because they bless them or curse them. One of the characteristics of this blessing of the kingdom is the fact that as this caring community known as the church cares for those who are hurting, the world sees that and glorifies the Father in heaven. Are Are we doing this in our nation, in our community, and in our home? All right, let me go to the fourth point, um, which is God is restoring all things through Christ. So, so far what we've seen is that God had promised three things to Abraham, land, blessing, and a seed. This is where it gets good, because everything that I just said is only possible because of one person, one divine person. And that divine person is the descendant of Abraham our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the uh, fourth and final point. God is restoring all things through Christ. So the central means of this redemptive work that we just talked about, even though it was not 100% clear to Abraham, is the promise that God will accomplish all of this through a descendant of his who is Jesus Christ. When God covenanted with Abraham Here in Genesis 12, and later reiterates it in Genesis chapter 22, we see this. He says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then Paul, he picks up this theme later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham. He talks about Abraham here and his offspring. And then Paul provides this commentary. He says, It does not say, And to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. In other words, the good news of God in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and again in Genesis 22, and you might even say throughout the rest of the the Old Testament, is that God is sending through the lineage of Abraham one who will make all that God promises a reality, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the one that, according to Colossians, is the means through which God created the world, and the one who holds everything together by the breath of his mouth. And it is for him and through him and by him that we exist, not only as a church, but as a people, as a race, as a species. And so it is only through faith in this promise of a seed who ultimately brings into reality everything that God promised to Abraham. It is only through faith in him that everything promised to Abraham becomes a reality. Christ is the one who died. So that the call of God could be successful or effectual. Christ is the one who rose again so that the newness of life that God has promised his kingdom could expand from shore to shore. Christ is the one ultimately who is restoring all things. Christ is the one through whom and by whom God is redeeming all of his good creation. So let me just conclude with a few things. One, There are four characteristics of the good news of God that we see here in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. First, that God is the one who calls. Secondly, that God is redeeming the land, the physical universe in which we live, and that this should have ramifications for how we treat the world that we live in. Third, that God is building a kingdom which includes the physical universe as well as the souls and eventually the resurrected bodies of all those who are saved. And four, that he is accomplishing, God is accomplishing all these things through Christ. Those are the four characteristics of the good news of God or the gospel that we see here in Genesis 12, one through three. Now, there's also uh, at least four points of application which I'll make and then then we'll conclude. Uh, The first is that we are to care for the physical universe understanding that Christ died to redeem all his good creation. You know, we sing about it, but we just don't live like we believe it. We sang about it earlier, and I sing the mighty power of God. When it, in the second verse, it says, I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground, I tread or gaze upon the sky. So this world declares the glory of God and the heavens proclaim his handiwork. And this world is God's good creation. And so the good news of God means that we are to care for this world, this universe, understanding that Christ died to redeem all things. Secondly, we are to be a community that seeks to be a blessing to everyone, even those people we disagree with. Even those people who aren't like us. Even those people whom we perceive to be a threat. Now, obviously, the only way that anyone can truly be blessed with this redemptive blessing that we've been referring to is if they, like Abraham, put their faith in Christ. But our mission is to do two things. To proclaim that good news and to live in a way that is a blessing to everyone. Third, we are part of the kingdom of God, which means that he is our faithful sovereign and we are under his divine rule. So we should live in a way that demonstrates what it looks like to be a subject of his kingdom. And then four, and finally, everything I just said is only possible when we live lives surrendered to Christ. So let me just say this. I don't want to assume that everyone here this morning has put their faith in him. I want you to know that if you hear the gospel, you hear this good news and you realize that, that you are an enemy of God, because the good news is only good because you and I are on this downhill spiral towards hell. The good news is only good because all of us are enemies of God. We're born that way. And God intervenes and he calls. And when he calls, he gives grace to believe in him. That's why it's good news. That he's doing a work that is good by redeeming and restoring everything that was lost. And so if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, let me admonish you that that is the greatest call to which you will respond. As he is presented to you in scripture, he and he alone is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are and will be blessed. And so I encourage you to repent of the fact, to forsake the fact, to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness that you are an enemy of his and to embrace the Christ that is set before you. And if you've done that, let me just simply say I hope that unlike the little girl who sits down to draw a picture of what God looks like, making him in her own image, in her own likeness, that you and me will listen to the God that is declared in scripture. And even though we cannot even begin to fathom the depth of his character, that we would allow his spirit to shape who we are and what we are to do in this world. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the seed, the promised seed through whom you are making all things new. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, even as it is presented here in the life of Abraham and in the promise that you made to Abraham. And as we ponder the application in our own day and in our own lives and the ramifications for us as those who have professed faith in you. We pray that our thinking, our hearts, our lives would be shaped by your word. Challenge us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, with the word proclaimed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.